Hi, everyone. This is Vanessa Richardson from California Groundbreakers. And today is Monday, October 28th. We're here in Sacramento, but up in Sonoma County, the Kincaid fire is raging. It went from 10% containment to 5%. And about 180,000 people, more or less, had been evacuated from the area. And this morning down in Southern California, the Getty fire started in the hills near Los Angeles. And people like LeBron James and Arnold Schwarzenegger have tweeted how they had to be evacuated. And then yesterday on Sunday, I think most of us experienced those historic, those hurricane force, those generational windstorms that blew through the state. So these are just a few of the signs of another wildfire season in California. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk to someone who fought a lot of these fires uh, in the past 35 years, and in the last eight years as the top firefighter in California. So here with us today is Chief Kem Pimlot. He is the former Cal Fire chief. Um, what's the official name of Cal Fire, Ken? Uh, it's the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection. But I think we all know it as Cal Fire, and I just, I just probably will keep calling you chief since you <laughs> were chief That's and great. always a chief. So I just wanted to start, uh, before we really get into the fires today, I wanted to ask you about your, why you became a firefighter. What was that first experience that made you want to make a career out of working with, dealing with, and fighting fires? Well, interestingly enough, my, uh, my dad uh, worked for the U.S. Forest Service on the Modoc National Forest, and I literally grew up watching 35-millimeter slides of his seasons uh, as a firefighter uh, there in Modoc County on, on the Modoc National Forest. And at a very early age, I was fortunate, age uh, um, 17, I became a reserve firefighter in Contra Costa County in the East Bay, East Bay area, and uh, learned all the basics of firefighting. And uh, when I graduated uh, from college, uh, I was able to ultimately be picked up by, well, CDF at the time. It was the Division of Forestry then. Uh, but it was really that uh, desire to respond and help people, I think, was the biggest part. And certainly any firefighter will tell you, you know, they, there's, an, there's an excitement and there's an adrenaline that goes with all of that. But the core value is just the idea you want to give back to your community uh, and help people. So you grew, up, you grew up in California. Yes. Born and raised. What was your first... Uh, experience just watching uh, a fire. I mean, I know for me, when I grew up at six in Vacaville, seeing the fire in the Vaca Valley range, uh, I knew, I was very aware of, I lived in California and fires were just part of the territory. But what about you when you were growing up? Did you have that kind of experience? I, I did. I think uh, I was uh, either, a, I believe a senior in high school, uh, there was a large fire behind my house in Lafayette in the hills. And it was large fire. Burnt. It literally skirted behind multiple homes. Got to see the air tankers come in, uh, all the firefighters on the ground. They set up the actual command post in our driveway. And so it was very real to us. Our home, you know, was one of those directly threatened in its path. And I, I think I knew right then that's what I wanted to do uh, and be part of. So we, many of us read about uh the firefighters, we see some video of them walking in their gear. But I wanted to see if you could put us there in the fire. Like, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you hear when you are there in the middle or on the edge of a blazing fire? What's what are what senses are being used? Uh, a lot of senses uh, come into play. Uh, obviously, you. Um have to keep your head uh, fully in the game because there's a lot going on. But it, in many respects, it's almost surreal. Uh, you know, if you're out there, you're going to have you can have aircraft flying overhead. You may have helicopters or air tankers dropping water or retardant. Uh, you've got the actual sound of the fire. You know, and again, depending on what's burning, can certainly make loud noises uh, and, and large, you know, almost like cars rushing. Uh, you can, uh, the heat itself and uh, how rapidly the fire can change direction uh, down power lines. Uh, you know, you can, we, oftentimes you'll find arcing power lines. So there's you know, numerous hazards. When structures start to burn, uh, that the whole impact, which is literally it's almost surreal being around this environment. When the wind blows, and again, just like the winds we're seeing this weekend, but even in other fires where it's even not as windy, the fire can create its own wind. And um, it's like, uh, it's hard to describe what you're in. It's just very surreal. Uh, and uh, time sometimes seems to slow down because you're really not paying attention to anything else in the outside world other than what's right in front of you. And you're, you're covered in gear, right? You're hauling this stuff. 
I guess you have to be very heat tolerant and sweat tolerant. You do. And again, uh, when you're in this initial push, uh, you know, adrenaline carries you through much of what you're doing because, again, you're, you're engaged in, in the firefight. And it's, it's an adrenaline uh, that pushes you along. But all of that comes uh, at a price. You're, yeah, when you're dealing in sometimes in the middle of the summer, 100 degree temperatures and you're carrying 40, 50 pounds of gear, uh, you quickly uh, can dehydrate. And so it is making, you know, staying hydrated, it's uh, ensuring you're wearing all of that personal protective equipment because that's what's going to protect you, you know, from that radiant heat uh, that's there. And so, and again, it's knowing your limits, uh, all that. But it is uh, very taxing. Uh, and uh, But we don't have the opportunity to stop and go into uh, inside to take a rest break. You know, the firefighters are out on the fire line, uh, and oftentimes we'll have to engage 36 or more hours before relief comes in those initial, um, you know, hours of the fire. So for the past eight years, you were CAL FIRE chief. You retired in December or January? December. December of uh, 2018, which I think was a really a banner year, I guess, <laughs> right? I, I saw here 8,521 fires burned, 1.9 million acres, 22,751 buildings destroyed, 97 civilians killed, six firefighters killed, 80 injuries. So that was, I guess, the most destructive year we've had yes and i guess that's maybe not the way you wanted to go out as cal fire chief but obviously you've had a lot of experience um what does it take to be i guess not the question of what what does it take to be chief of cal fire but what really senses i mean we talked about what senses you used in fighting a fire but in terms of being the chief firefighter and being in charge of deploying all these people all this equipment spending all this money what really did you learn or what did you really use in terms of physical, emotional, mental skills? Well, it does tax you for um, all of your senses, if you will. Um, and 2018 was a disastrous year for California. We thought 2017 couldn't be eclipsed, and, and certainly it was. And the last several years in California have been just... Um, uh, very challenging, just catastrophic fire years. Uh, you know, you rely on people. And, you know, when you're the chief of CAL FIRE, you don't do it alone. Uh, you uh, rely on, internally in the organization, a team of people, uh, whether it's your communications director, your region chiefs, your operational uh, chiefs, your management services, your administration. I mean, the, the organization, firefighters are like an army. They only go as far as their supply lines last, right? And so uh, you need to feed them, you need to house them, you need to equip them. Uh, all that requires, um, you know, a skill set and a group of people. So the chiefs were, you know, relying on all of that as a team working together. And uh, there is no way I certainly could have uh, performed as the chief of CAL FIRE without a very strong uh, leadership team. Um, and then it's your, clearly your firefighters on the ground. I mean, they are day in and day out, uh, you know, living this experience. And that was certainly the challenge in both 2017 and 2018. Folks weren't getting a break. We uh, had people on duty most of the summer and uh, they don't generally get to go off shift. We were holding them on duty. And even if they weren't actively fighting a fire, they were in a fire station ready to go or they were at an air attack base or at a conservation camp. So that takes its toll on families it takes its toll on everyone and so it's constantly trying to be mindful of how do we keep them healthy both physically uh, and mentally and that's a, a huge challenge for the fire service as a whole right now and a national focus is how because you know we talk about ptsd um, you know if our, our service men and women well if the public safety agencies firefighters are facing that too but it's, it's a longer term accumulation of exposure and so those things weigh on you every day and you talked about the number of civilian fatalities last year and then the six firefighters uh, also who lost their lives, uh, that weighs very, very heavily on you. Uh, because even though you can't know 8,000 firefighters and employees in your organization, you are responsible for every one of them every day. And so you carry that home with you uh, every night. Uh, our job is, yes, very dangerous, and we all signed up for that. We know that. But at the end of the day, we we, we don't want to lose anybody. Uh, and um, so those are all things that are very challenging. But I think we also learned a lot uh, as we move through the time. I and mean, we, we pride ourselves 
in California, not just CAL FIRE, but all of the fire agencies on, you know, really having um, top-notch training and equipment and uh, the organizational skills, this mutual aid system and the ability for California to move resources around the state um, is incredible. Um, really, uh, unlike any other state um, or country, um, we have the ability to do that. But even we were taxed uh, with the volume of fires and the number of structures threatened and people impacted um, that we you know, relied heavily, uh, just as they're doing today, uh, on resources from outside of California. So as the chief, you're constantly trying to think ahead of the game. What do we need next? You know, we've used this resource. What do we need to get next to try to, you know, counteract? And I think every year that went by, we kept realizing this continues to escalate this challenge. And so how can we lean further forward using our National Guard partners very seamlessly, working with other law enforcement agencies? Uh, what are unique things we can do to really help us get ahead of uh, this challenge that we, you know, we know would come? So you are officially retired, and I guess you went 70 acres or so in El Dorado County. Yes. I was curious, yesterday and Sunday, when we had those big uh, winds that came through, when you woke up, what were you thinking? Did you instinctively want to put on your gear, go to Mission Command? Uh, what happened yesterday that you know made you sad not to be chief of cal fire or, or happy <laughs> anything in particular well certainly after spending over 30 years uh doing this you it becomes part of your your way of life and you're very committed to it and uh yeah when you you know stop doing that uh, it takes a little bit to because you're really operating at a, a very high level and I must admit, I you know get up in the morning and saw what was happening and looked at the weather conditions and realized, well, what should I be doing right now? And you know, why is nobody calling? And yeah, like, like a year ago, what would your phone would your phone just be, be blowing, blowing up. up? Yeah, and and you would be you know engaged in lots of discussions, information and that would be going on a lot. Uh, and so, but obviously, it's well in hand right now. And <laughs> uh, uh, but it really, um, even though it's been a quiet, relatively calm fire season up to this point it to what's happened in the last week really brings home what we've been saying the whole time that um, don't misjudge the conditions out there based on activity things will change in October the fall months always are our most destructive fires season most period of time in this state and historically it has this, been yes and unfortunately you know this week is proving out to be um, you know just like that so say you were still head of CAL FIRE today. Uh, obviously, there's many fires around the state, but the two big ones that, that are getting most of the attention and the most acreage, Kincaid Fire up in Sonoma County, and the Getty Fire just came out of nowhere this morning. Um, in a nutshell, I guess, what would you be thinking, okay, Kincaid Fire, here's what we need to do. What would be the, the master plan, if there's one, and Getty Fire just started? Can you give us a, a, like a, a nutshell case of how you would uh, put a plan in place and start deploying resources? Well, absolutely. And I would really do just as they're doing now. Uh, and there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes that folks aren't seeing coordination at a very high level uh, at the state. Uh, and so we look at this in a number of ways. Number one, uh, we want to put out 90% um, of the fires, excuse me, 95% of the fires at 10 acres or less. That's the state's goal in fire suppression. So initial attacking, having resources available to initial attack new fires, because if we can keep them small, then we don't have threats like the Getty fire or the Kincaid fire. So initial attack of new fires is always our priority. And what that means is as we get new fire starts uh, that are taking resources, we're having to shuffle and move resources around to redeploy. It's almost like that bucket of water. When you take your hand out, the water's, we've got to let the remaining amount of water um, fan out across the landscape so that we, again, provide resources. And so there's a constant coordination going on to ensure resources are being moved to catch that next fire when it starts. In the meantime, yes, you're prioritizing the fires that are burning, and obviously the Kincaid fire with the significant impact uh, to Sonoma County, uh, the Getty fire uh, in, in Los Angeles City. So your plan is what you're looking at, what are, the, what are the incidents requesting? And we then have the job of trying to anticipate what do we think they will need, because there's a reflex time to get more resources on the road. And if we have to go out of state to Oregon or Nevada or further, we know that may take several days to get some of those resources into California. So at the high level, we're gonna be thinking about how do I 
order ahead of time, get some things on the road in anticipation of what we think these um, fires are going to need, or if we have new large fires in the coming days that we'll have resources in play and not have to wait. So we're constantly thinking ahead of that. And then obviously, how can we support the uh, the operations on the ground? And, and it's not just providing fire engines. Uh, it's all that logistical support that goes into supporting them. And then it's way beyond the firefight itself. It's what goes on at the state operations center uh, here in Sacramento at the, at the California Office of Emergency Services. Uh, right now, I can tell you there's a unified coordination group meeting, and that's the cabinet level, executive level leadership of the state. And certainly it's your public safety agencies, Cal Fire, Cal OES, the Howie Patrol, it's the National Guard. But then it's all of your other agencies, Health and Human Services, Department of Education, Caltrans, because every uh, department is being impacted by, uh, it's the social aspect of all this people. Uh, how do we provide sheltering? How do we deal with critical care patients uh, in these communities? In some cases you have to evacuate hospitals and so many of these are critical care patients and so how do we get them evacuated with the right amount of equipment and support to, during that evacuation? So all these things come into play and have to be coordinated and yes, while we're focused on the firefight itself, there's a whole nother element to this going on behind the scenes. And then it's also looking at how do we set this up for uh, the recovery aspect? Because when the firefight's done, the recovery in these communities will take months, if not years. And so already thinking about, you know, how do we start putting some of those things in place so that we have a seamless, you know, and a successful process. Uh, and I obviously, you know, we read about, okay, the winds are coming, so prepare yourself. So you're probably looking at meteorological forecasts, weather forecasts. Um, and then I'm wondering in terms of geography, like if you look at uh, areas that have burned already, um, I know for the Kincaid fire, they had that, they're trying to hold it at Highway 101 because if it keeps going west, they're saying that's land that hasn't burned in right, 40 years. So that, does that come into play too in terms of where it's happening and you're yeah. seeing, oh, that's a a very high risk area or absolutely so as you indicated so we we're obviously we're look every day we're looking at the weather forecast we have predictive services centers both in riverside and in redding that are focused just on fire behavior prediction and its impact uh, from weather so they're fire behavior specialists combined with meteorologists so they're they're really putting this fire expertise together obviously closely working with the National Weather Service as well. So every day uh, a forecast comes out uh, and that can be amended throughout the day, but we project out seven days for, and it's all based on the fuel conditions on the ground, uh, location and predicted uh, weather. And, and so if we know that we're gonna, we're gonna see these kinds of winds uh, in certain areas of the state, then we can start factoring in where we think the greatest impacts are gonna be and what we think that um, would do to fire behavior should a fire start. And so as those become more refined throughout, you know, prior to an event, then we can start pre-positioning resources. And that's both CAL FIRE moving resources, but also local government, uh, a very aggressive approach now to moving additional resources from local government. Again, through the mutual aid system, multiple fire departments engaging in this and, and moving around uh, the state. And yes, if there's an area where we know there's a, a particular threat, we're trying to protect communities, uh, historical structures. I know we've just lost a winery with the- uh, yes. Soda Rock, yes. Those are important too. I mean, light people are obviously our number one priority, but also take into consideration where there are historic uh, and other uh, cultural resources, et cetera, uh, that need to be protected. And Cal Fire doesn't fight every fire. I mean, are there geographical areas where you fight because it's uh, state land or national forest uh in cities you know or like if, if a fire happened in sacramento it would be sacramento fire department that would take a, where does where does cal fire uh take charge of fires and where does it not so cal fire is primarily responsible uh for wildland fires in the state responsibility areas of the state it's about 31 million acres and it's actually primarily private watershed lands. Uh, small amount of it is in public, uh, could be um, county uh, parks, could be state parks, uh, but most of it is are your rangelands, forest lands, uh, brush, chaparral covered lands uh, of all sizes. And it was determined decades ago that the state needed to engage in providing protection because those those resources on that landscape impact everybody it's watershed it's wildlife it's air quality it's timber values so the state invested early on in protecting that and so that's the primary responsibility 
because people are such a big piece of that part of the landscape in California, as is our you know, protecting our timber resources and others, Cal Fire takes a very aggressive approach to fire suppression in those areas because we can't afford to let fire escape from one landowner to the next. Everybody's got different management objectives. The trade-off to that is aggressive fire protection means also some of our forests build up on natural fuels, but we can't allow fires to burn. Now our partners, the National Forest Service, the Forest Service is federal land, um, they also often take a very uh, proactive approach to ensuring that they're protecting the lands in California, but they also have a responsibility to manage those lands and they have some ability to allow fires to burn in, at elevations or in areas where there isn't an impact to people. So a little different. Uh, uh, policy, but all these are the same firefighters. Uh, if there's a fire in Sacramento in the city uh, or unincorporated areas that aren't within Cal Fire's jurisdiction, it's going to be the responsibility of that local fire department to respond. But Cal Fire provides resources uh, both to our federal partners and our local government partners as part of the mutual aid system. So we're always going to be available. And, and, and conversely, they do the same. Resources from local government and our federal partners all come together we really look at the closest resources to respond to any emergency in the state. So I wanted to ask you, you have been a firefighter for 35 years total and you were chief of Cal Fire for eight years. So I'm sure a few things have changed in your experience, maybe the gear you have used, the technology you use, but fire seems to be, uh, has been around for, you know, since forever. And uh, it burns uh, very similarly, but I feel like for, Many of us Californians, especially Northern California, we have grown up with the fires happening over there in the forest, in the Sierras, in areas where there's not many people. And then it feels like, at least for me, and I think a lot of us here, 2017 was kind of a wake-up call. The Tubbs fire came through Santa Rosa, Napa, Santa Rosa, I believe, and hit through a very big town in an area that is world famous. And I think that made people open their eyes like, wow, fire is here. And a lot of attention obviously uh, has been paid since then. And now we're dealing with Kincaid fire, same area, right? And Getty fire in uh, a very wealthy area of Los Angeles. LeBron was driving around looking for a hotel at four in the morning. So. I was wondering in terms of what's your take in your experience as a firefighter, as a Cal Fire Chief, what has changed? Has the fire and the methods stayed the same, but now there's been such a, uh, a recent attention on the geography where they're happening here in California. The media coverage of it seems to be so much more. So I just wanted to get your take on, especially in the eight years, what have you really noticed in terms of fighting fires and the public perception of those fires? So I could probably start by saying what hasn't changed. And what hasn't changed is it's, it's the firefighters, the boots on the ground that ultimately engage in the firefight. And it's still the principles of fighting a fire are unchanged. It, we can have all the aircraft and all the technology, uh, but at the end of the day, it's still mopping up that fire, putting it out, protecting those homes, all of that work that they do. Uh, but everything around the firefighter is changing. And, uh, you know, with a 35-year career and then the, you know, certainly with the last eight as the chief of CAL FIRE, um, we are seeing conditions very different. And we have always had uh, Santa Ana winds in Southern California. In my career, went through a number of significant Santa Ana wind fires uh, that had occurred. Northern California doesn't get quite, historically didn't get quite the press, but the Mono winds or Diablo winds have always been present in Northern California. Oh, is that what we, we call them? Yes, because it's the, it's the same principle, but it's coming off a different part of the landscape. And of course, they're using the local geographic, you know, the Mono uh, Plains or Basin or the Diablo Range, Mount Diablo, uh, is where they come from because they're coming from the east or the north, not from the traditional onshore flow. And that's really the principle here is, is whether it's a Santa Ana wind or, or these northerly winds in the north, they're, the winds are coming from the other direction and it's a drier, uh, more intense uh, wind because of, again, how the pressure gradients and, and, and are lined up. But the bottom line is that we have always had these conditions, but they're becoming more extreme and more frequent. And uh, you put five years of drought that we had starting in you know uh, 2012 or so, and the vegetation hasn't recovered from that. 
Uh, and then you look, even with some wet winters, and then you look at, again, these um, really more frequent, more extreme winds that are occurring, um, it's, it's creating, uh, you know, greater challenges. And it is pushing these fires into communities that traditionally hadn't been impacted. And one, we've built out into these areas more, but also the fires are being pushed down into areas, again, the, the, the Tubbs fire in 2017 in Santa Rosa was a perfect example. That fire jumped, you know, over six lanes of the 101 freeway. Uh, into a subdivision, really an urban subdivision. And what became from that was a house-to-house -house firefight. It wasn't even about a wildland fire. Uh, but it shows that fires can quickly now go from a, a wildland environment and you know, transfer into an urban environment. And so uh, we're seeing uh, greater impact to people. We're seeing that re then requires a greater use of resources. Uh, they're lasting longer in the year. Our fire seasons are lasting much longer. So the impacts it has uh, on getting resources there that uh, you know, need to be deployed now year round, uh, all that's creating uh, stressors. We've had changes in, in you know, technologies, and I think we, that's where we're really continuing to evolve uh, in the fire service. And beginning part of that is our detection abilities. Uh, there's a significant camera network uh, throughout uh, California now, and that's been a sort of a combining of multiple uh, agencies and organizations feeding cameras into one network, Alert Wildfire, it's called. Where are these cameras placed? They're on mountaintops, they're on repeater sites, they're on fire lookouts, they're anywhere that has a good you know, view of the terrain, and they're broadcasting 24-7. Uh, and they're kind of broken up by region in the state, and uh, they're really evolving to where you can see much of the state, the wildland areas of the state now. Uh, but other new technologies to help detect fires early uh, is important uh, so that resources can, can get there. Personal protective equipment. Uh, CAL FIRE, with many of our local government partners, worked has worked for a number of years now to try to provide that best protection for the wildland firefighter. When you see a structural firefighter, go into a building and work around a vehicle fire. The technology for, for uh, what they can use there has really evolved. They've got self-contained breathing apparatus, they've got structural turnout gear, all that designed to protect them from that exposure. A wildland firefighter, uh, when you're in that mode of operation, uh, we haven't evolved because it's a challenging environment to work in. They can be out you know, miles away from uh, their resources, their, uh, their fire apparatus where they can you know, gain additional equipment. And so it's just, trying to find the best piece of equipment to support them. Yeah, how do they get out there? I mean, if there's uh, fires that, I mean, obviously in the uh, in the Sierras, like how do they get out there? Is it through road or they drop from planes? Uh, you know, how do you get people to where they need to go, especially in very remote, steep terrain? It's really all of the above. Uh, you know, obviously the at the end of the day, you're on your two feet and you're hiking. Uh, but certainly ground resources will drive as far as they can access uh, using existing roads. Uh, sometimes you know, bulldozers uh, will have the ability to cut new roads or open up vegetation to allow uh, further you know, driving in. Uh, there are the, the, the smoke jumpers that the federal agency, the Forest Service, have. So in limited areas, uh, there is the ability to drop firefighters from the air. Uh, helicopters. It's not uncommon to fly firefighters into an area that's remote and inaccessible um, and, and deploy them that way. Uh, but generally speaking, they're going to drive or they're going to hike uh, to get to where they need to be. So all of that uh, points back towards what's the best personal protective equipment to protect them from not only the, the fire itself, but from buildup of the body heat, because you're going to be exerting um, a lot of energy. Uh, and so we've been working a lot on what's the right amount of personal protective equipment to protect from the fire, but also not uh, to help reduce the amount of uh, exposure to, to heat exhaustion or heat stroke while they're performing that operation. And this is probably, well, my dumb question at least, for um, how fires get their names? Because obviously it feels like in California, we it's the equivalent of hurricanes, right? There's the Camp Fire, the Ranch Fire, the Tubbs Fire. Now we have Kincaid and, and Getty. And I uh, obviously, Getty Center, I guess, in L.A., it's the spire this morning started near there. But, um, yeah, how do how do fires get their names? Uh, well, really, the Getty Center is obvious because it's next to the Getty Center. Well, that's exactly how fires are named. It's a, a geographic 
uh, uh, reference. And typically, it's a road. It can be a landmark. Uh, it's typically supposed to be one word, supposed to be simple. Uh, but that's the whole idea is it gets a name from a local geographic uh, landmark. So like the campfire was actually I believe, the name of a road that was there. Okay. More often than not, it's the name of the, the closest road. So car reference. fire up in Reading. It was Correct. A, it was the car powerhouse. Okay. And then Mendocino Complex last year, which was, I think, the biggest geographical the largest fire largest in fire. state's history that was like three fires merging into one or a it was complex two. it was the uh, the, ranch, the fire ranch fire and the um what is it all running together right now it so was, many I, oh, sorry it was it was two fires uh, and so when we have oftentimes when we have large uh fires burning in close proximity together we will manage them as one incident and so then we call it a complex because we've got two separate fires but they're all together. It was the river and the ranch fire okay. together. So they became more Mendocino complex, complex. Yes. as they merged. Okay. So yes, yeah, speaking of the campfire, I believe it a year ago next week is when it initially started. And I don't, I'm, I don't know if there are any more fires that happened uh, after that for 2019, but it feels like that was the last major fire that you were in charge of. I was wondering, you, can you tell us the day that it happened? Uh, how you found out about it, and just notable memories and experiences with that fire, which I think the most fatal fire we've had in California to date. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So all of the leadership for Cal Fire from the northern half of the state, the northern region, were having their uh, quarterly meeting. Uh, we were actually meeting in Marin County. And uh, so it was unit chiefs, it was the uh, deputy directors for fire protection, the CAL FIRE leadership from uh, the executive level. We were together meeting. To, again, we, we meet to talk policy. You know, it's all part of the running an organization. And uh, literally, though, we uh, were getting up that morning in the hotel uh, where we were staying, and it was immediately being texted uh, by the northern region chief, um, who was responsible for all of CAL FIRE north of, from Sacramento north. And he said, hey, we have a new start. Uh, in the area of Polga, and he says, I'm really concerned because this has, is a fire corridor, and uh, with the winds they're already seeing, you know, we're really concerned about where this may go. And that was, again, about 6.30ish in the morning, and uh, the region chief, uh, Scott Upton, he grew up there. He's from Paradise. So uh, he had a real good handle, and we had been prepared. I mean, this was a red flag, uh, you know, condition that existed. Resources had been staffed up, had been deployed. Aircraft were already scheduled to come on early in the morning. You know, aircraft were prepared. I mean, we had resources in place, pre-deployed. Um, so wasn't, you know, we were anticipating fire conditions, but I think when we literally about an hour later, we all met for breakfast, and this just kept unfolding. We realized how significant this was becoming even with, within less than an hour of the fire starting uh, people started leaving to go engage be, you know at the management level obviously you're not fighting the fire on the ground but you're engaging all of the appropriate leadership uh, and coordination to make all this happen and so we we tried to start a meeting uh you know and get our work done but clearly there was just too much this had just evolved into being something that was going to be a major uh, incident and so we quickly canceled the meeting and uh, most of the management team you know went to where they needed to go some went back to butte uh, county to, to support that operation uh, myself and the chief deputy director uh, drove from Marin county back to sacramento uh, in the course of doing that obviously was engaging the governor's office uh, on an update coordinating with uh, the director of the um, Office of Emergency Services, because at this point we were looking at what, again, just as we talked about earlier, what do we need to do to get ahead of this? What's our situational awareness? And those were the biggest challenges. And what was going through my head as we were driving on Highway 80 uh, in that Vacaville, Dixon area, the winds were howling and the smoke from the fire was already blowing across uh, Highway 80 and uh, as though there were a grass fire right there and it wasn't this was from vegetation and homes burning from how what, far away what is that 70 80 miles I mean just uh, and so tr and we knew we were starting to get reports that things bad things were happening and we just the situational awareness in a time like that when firefighters and law enforcement and others are just engaged in saving people uh, and with the weather conditions, you couldn't get an aerial look at what was going on because of both the wind and the lack of visibility. So you get, you're frustrated because you don't, you want to get a better picture for what's going on down inside there. But 
we knew enough to know that this was going to be a major incident and it was going to have con uh, um, consequences. And so engaging directly with partners at the National Guard and the Office of Emergency Services, we quickly started putting a plan together uh, by, I want to say, early afternoon. The entire team was already meeting uh, at the Office of Emergency Services and getting well ahead of getting resources ordered and trying to support uh, where this was going. Um, but you just had this sinking feeling that, again, we were in the first week of November, that we were, the weather was turning, we all wanted fire season to be over. And again, we had, 2018 was already a difficult year with the car fire, and you know, we had hoped we had already had our bad fires for the year. And as this unfolded, we just, I think we all had this sinking feeling that this, you know, this is just gonna be a difficult, difficult one. And I have to ask, because there's a photo of you uh, showing uh, in front of a map, and you are showing three, a, f a few people uh, there behind you or standing next to you, uh, what's going on with Campfire and how you're managing it. So next to you is Jerry Brown, uh, Governor-elect Gavin Newsom, and President Trump. And uh, it's to me, it's a very notable photo uh, because there's three guys who typically don't get along, and then there's you. But obviously, it, it, this campfire brought all of you into that one room. I was just curious, like, what was that situation like? It's not like you have to slam anyone, but that just seems like a very <laughs> notable experience, being in that room. Yes, I was thinking, where could I be on vacation right now? <laughs> no, and you know, this is the thing about human nature. And uh, yes, there were so many politics, of course, going on, and everybody, everybody politicizes these kinds of events. Um, but as we would say throughout the course of the last several years, um, disasters ha uh, know no political party. And um, that day, while certainly could have certainly worried about where was this going to go, I was very heartened by um, the candor and just the support and the ability to engage that for the right reasons. We were standing in a community where, well, what's turned out to be 86 people perished. And we were looking at over 19,000 mostly homes and businesses in this entire town that was burned to the ground and trying to be compassionate for these people who have lost everything. And um, to have the highest level of national leadership, the, you know, and yeah, the complexity of having two governors, the governor-elect and the current governor together, um, but everybody engaged for the right reasons and did the right things and pledged the support and um, left the backroom discussions for, the off for, for that. But that day, uh, people were focused on supporting the community and um, I was heartened by that. And uh, again, people can have their own, you know, where they're at with the politics. But on that day, I think we really uh, got done what we needed to get done. And even um, at the time, Governor like Newsom, when they, the three of them rode in uh, the Marine One uh, from Beale Air Force Base to Chico, where we met the motor, met them, and, and got in the motorcade. And as they were all coming off the helicopter, uh, Governor Lech Newsom literally said, "Hey, it went well. We talked. This is thing you know, talking about um, you know federal aid and assistance from FEMA and other uh, you know presidential declarations, all of that. And uh, my understanding, it was a very good conversation. And so that really did set the tone for the day." So now there's a lot of attention. A year later, there's so much attention on uh, PG&E in particular, because I think they were officially cited as uh, the, 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 what caused the fire. Correct. And so now there's power outages, and they're getting a lot of uh, attention, to say the least. I was wondering, from your take as a resident who's currently being affected by a uh, power outage uh, by PG&E, and as your former role as Cal Fire Chief, what's your take on what PG&E is doing and uh, I guess past, present, and future plans uh, in their in their role? Are they being too extreme? Are they doing the right thing? Could it be fine-tuned? What's what's your take as a resident as and as a former Cal Fire Chief? It's, uh, it's a very challenging uh, circumstance, I think, that everyone is in, particularly the utilities, but the state as a whole. Uh, yeah, it can certainly be argued, and I would be right there saying there hasn't been the investment in the infrastructure, uh, the distribution systems, all right down to you know the small lines that go support individual homes. There wasn't the investment in that by PG&E over the decades that 
there probably should have been. And uh, so while you have an older system uh, that uh, is out there, at the same time, we've got vegetative conditions that have changed, right? Our, our, they're just parched and our, our wind events and our weather events are becoming more extreme. So you're combining both of those to get where we're at right now. Uh, we're not in a circumstance where, at least from my perspective, to point back and keep blaming. I, we can't fix what did or didn't happen. So going forward, how do we mitigate the risk? And um, yes, as a person, on a personal perspective, who's obviously with 300 million other people, or 3 million other people who are impacted by no power this morning, um, it is a huge inconvenience. Uh, and I don't like it, right? But at the end of the day, the consequence is if we, if power lines continue to stay energized in 60 plus mile an hour winds, we're gonna have many, many more fire starts. And so I don't think there's any recourse but to do what they're doing. Uh, I think when it initially uh, was put into practice last year, it was very cumbersome. Uh, I think you could find many people telling you uh, in, in the public sector that it wasn't um, uh, done in a way that engaged those of us in public safety and at the, at the government level very well a lot of frustration. Uh, I think in the last year that's been significantly refined. I think there's still a lot of work that has to be done, uh, but I do think this is the reality. Uh, with the conditions we're facing, this is just what we're going to have to live with right now. Going forward, how this infrastructure is dealt with and what the status of the investor-owned utilities are going forward, I think there's a lot to be you know, decided there, uh, both politically and you know, in bankruptcy court, where all that, wherever all that's going. In the very short term, I think PG&E, along with the other investor-owned utilities, have a responsibility to manage this risk to the public because there's a significant risk. What is important to understand, you know, 95% of the fires in California are started by people. And that doesn't mean just the utilities or it doesn't mean it's arson. It's all of the above. The accidental fire starts. Uh, you know, the car fire in Redding in 2018 uh, was started by, you know, a boat trailer uh, that, you know, where there was an issue with the, with the wheel or the axle. So there's lots of things that happen. Uh, it's our responsibility to try to mitigate as many of those fire starts as possible. In the case of, of PG&E, you know, as the, as the chief of CAL FIRE, CAL FIRE is the regulatory agency responsible for investigating all fires that start within the wildland, you know, the state responsibility area. And certainly many of the most destructive and f fatal fires, you know, have been associated in the last several years with utilities, in particular PG&E. So we come from this role of having to hold whomever accountable for negligently starting a fire, uh, while at the same time, in the case of our utilities, PG&E, Edison, others, we have to have electricity. I mean, so, so this makes it a very difficult question. It's, we can't just, there's a balancing act. We have to hold everyone accountable for negligently starting a fire, with the whole idea being is that we help reduce the number of negligent fire starts. But at the same time, how do we move forward and do this in a way that, uh, you know, putting PG&E out of business doesn't help us get electricity in our home today. So how does that discussion go forward? And um, it's a very difficult one, and it's why you know, there's a lot of discussion happening right now, uh, both publicly and in the legislature uh, and with others. Um, but it's, it, it is a challenge. And uh, it, you know, now certainly being on the, the resident side of it, you know, realizing, yes, there, it's it, it, quite frankly left a very eerie feeling, I think, with people uh, this weekend who had never experienced this level of power outage. And then you're looking in the media and realizing how devastating the fires are that are burning and you're feeling the wind yourself firsthand. Um, I would say just there was a sense of uneasiness by many, many people, you know, certainly around communities in California this weekend. Feels very apocalyptic. It, it certainly does. So I was going to ask, in terms of PG&E, with the Kincaid fire, I mean, obviously, it's still raging, and there's there's no official cause determined yet. But it sounds like there is a lot of attention on PG&E's announcement that there was a faulty transmission line happening in the place where it started. So for me, as just a, a person, I thought, oh, I thought the power was all turned out. But it sounds like with these transmission lines, power was still flowing. So I was wondering if you could explain to us you know, these transmission lines, are they still going and uh, the uh, electricity is going through them, even though we think some things are turned off, not everything is turned off? Um, so certainly... How uh, does it work with these transmission uh, lines? <laughs> well, absolutely. So certainly the, 
uh, Kincaid fire is still under investigation. You know, PG&E is required to report uh, an emergency, give an emergency uh, incident, incident report to the PUC anytime there's a fault like that, and they've disclosed that very early on. Uh, ultimately, the investigation, and as the news media has talked about, and our inve CAL FIRE investigators will uh, ultimately determine what that cause was, wherever it was for that fire. But I, what that did, though, was sort of bring home, yeah, how come the electricity isn't turned off everywhere? And I, I think these are decisions, obviously, PG&E looks at. Uh, what's really being turned off are, is this distribution system that's the network of power lines throughout uh, these wildland areas uh, of the state or of PG&E service area. And they're like, if you could equate them to the circulatory system of a body, they're really the capillaries where that's where the greatest exposure and risk is. You have all these lines right from the service drop to your house all the way up to the, the transformers and the, 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 the power poles and the, all of those lines that are crisscrossing out there across the, the landscape. Those are all the areas that are, you know, obviously exposed to weather and to the wind uh, and are out there in the wildland. And so, you know, the focus, I think, has been for them to get, reduce that risk by, you know, reducing or turning electricity off. When you consider shutting down those larger transmission lines has a much greater cascading effect because those are transmitting electricity, you know, oftentimes outside of the state. I mean, they're using those transmission lines to move electricity large distances. And, um, and again, there's reasons and criteria for how they're looking at that that they can best um, explain but certainly there's going to be different impacts. So they're evaluating risk and looking at what, how do they help mitigate the greatest amount of risk while at the same time you know, the dis not impacting the disruption of a, a power flow. And it, again, it's proven to be a very challenging you know, process as we all know, uh, particularly where people don't see wind in their neighborhood but they've lost electricity. And um, it's a very challenging process for them to try to, to mitigate that. So with the focus on transmission lines and power outages, it, I have read about why can't we put these lines underground? Maybe they'll be safer, uh, less uh, uh, risk of fire. And I don't know if there's areas that uh, already have lines underground or, or that's in place. But I've also read that it's very expensive. And maybe geographically, there's some places you can't do it. But I was wondering, should we thinking, or utility companies at least, of putting lines underground, would that be better for a uh, fire hazard? What are the pros and cons of doing that? You know, undergrounding is certainly uh, one option to help uh, reduce the risk from, from wildland fire. But as you said, it's very expensive. And uh, I think many, you know, many new developments, they're able to build that into uh, the construction. But there are, there are downfalls from it, too. It's uh, more challenging for the utility companies to access that infrastructure uh, if there are faults or there's issue with it underground. Oftentimes, there can be issues with flooding. Mm -hmm. uh, there can be uh, construction accidents can you know, obviously disturb or impact those. So there, it's not a perfect solution everywhere. Uh, and, and as you said, again, just the cost is significant. So I think it's uh, using it as the right tool in the right place is absolutely appropriate. But I don't think it's a one size fits all. I think obviously we have they have to be able to look at you know all kinds of alternatives um, in addition to just undergrounding in places. And speaking of technology and, and just better ways of using it in the future, letting people know in advance about fires. I know we just had an earthquake alert put into place of what 20 or 30 years after Loma Prieta hit San Francisco. Uh, what has been put in place uh, during and after you left Cal Fire, what should be in place for letting people know about fires and when they're coming for you? So I think uh, a lot's been happening in this space uh, in the last uh, year. And the Tubbs fire in uh, Sonoma County really brought home how quickly these things happen and the notification challenges, uh, particularly for different as, uh, uh, demographics and m members of the community members of the population who don't use social media, you know, are using traditional phone lines, television, radio, et cetera. And I, I, I have said for a while that one of the challenges, we think of red flag warnings as really it's almost become white noise. Okay, great, I've got, you know, red flag warning, it's not going to affect me, and you move on with your day. You know, I would think in the Midwest, when there's a tornado warning, it's more imminent. People know exactly what to do. They go to a shelter. They, you know, ride it out. They do what they need to do. Um, I don't think we, have up until now, 
folks have really fully understood what that red flag warning is and what the threat truly is. Uh, I, I think the work that's been going on uh, during the Kincaid fire really shows this leaning forward that's going on. This was taken very seriously. Certainly the PG&E power outages got people's attention. Okay, there's a wind event. But with the work that the, the public agencies, the, the public safety agencies and others are doing uh, to be very leaning forward in letting people know this is what this means for Sonoma County. Like driving around the neighborhood and saying, get out now, yes. get out now. Well, and just following the, sup the boards of supervisor members uh, in Sonoma County who uh, are very engaged in talking to their community and being the, the ombudsman and the spokespersons for uh, the public safety agencies, for the sheriff and the fire agencies and CAL FIRE saying, hey, this is, could happen. And I think what while the, this fire is huge and very destructive uh, in Sonoma County, I think as of today, the fact that there has not been loss of life and that there's been a very proactive approach to evacuation. I mean, over 180,000 people. We had some opportunity. You know, they had a little, a little bit of warning when the fire started. It wasn't at midnight, so they were able to start, but it also started in an area maybe that wasn't quite in the middle of, uh, of a populated area. But everything that's happened since then about being proactive um, I, are all things, I think, that again, learning about how to do this as we go. I know one thing that we have talked about in the past, or, or you have talked about in the past, but actually I'm going to put in a, a plug here uh, for the the last, one of the last events we did was a panel discussion where Chief Pimlot was involved. We did one up in Auburn in September, I believe, on what to do when you live in a high-risk uh, wildfire zone. A lot of California is in a high risk or very high risk. So shameless plug, that is a podcast that we have up on our many on our iTunes and uh, all the other ones. And this one will be too. And in that discussion that we had, we did talk about uh, development and the, uh, I guess, the urban wildlife interface, where a lot of homes now are being built uh, farther ranging uh, farther away. There is a notable uh, building development coming up that has been a little contentious and it is I, I'm sorry I never know if I'm saying it right Tejon Tejon T-E-J-O-N Ranch Tejon Ranch that's um, I guess uh, just north of Los Angeles uh, if you drive Interstate 5 through the Grapevine Correct. right there's Tejon Ranch which is like this huge area and now they're building homes on it right they've just approved 19,333 homes into home ranch and i guess it got a lot of contention because it is in a severe fire hazard zone with no natural water supply but the la county board of supervisors approved the building i think their uh la county fire department chief daryl osby has said he's comfortable with the fire safety planning and of course it you know creates jobs it creates housing uh, public revenue for the county. But again, in this day and age, severe fire hazard zone with no natural water supply. And I'm wondering, what do you think about Tejon Ranch and other developments that are being built out in this or wildlife interface or whatever the term is, where there's going to be a lot more effort to save those homes uh, or developments if they, if they uh, go on fire? It's the challenge that we're facing going forward, and we hope we we have to learn from what's been happening in these communities and how they're burning, and we need to make good, sound land use planning decisions going forward based on, on all of this. And certainly didn't review the Tejon Ranch proposal, and, you know, Daryl Osby is the fire authority for Los Angeles County, and, uh, uh, you know, he's taking into consideration all of these aspects. I think it's important to point out, I think Porter Ranch, we you know, just had a fire there a few weeks ago. Where uh, is Porter Ranch? It's along the I-5-14-118 uh, uh, corridor, it, it just in the north end of Los Angeles uh, City, and uh, kind of that area south of Castaic. And so it's a similar area, and I, you know there were a number of structures lost, uh, very similar. And it's, it comes down to, even though the, the vegetation type isn't like paradise. It's not forested, uh, you know, overstory. It is it, brush and grass and, and shrub. But under the kinds of wind conditions, all these things we're seeing that have historically occurred as well, um, all it takes are some embers getting into some of the homes, finding that weak link to, to intrude into the home. Uh, you start 
having homes burn, and now you have house-to-house -house ignition. Uh, and so even these more modern developments um, can be exposed to those kinds of threat, uh, risks. And so density, water supplies, access, both ingress and egress, amount of that, you know, number of roads, all of that uh, come into play. Uh, number of people, you know, density directly affects the number of people that are living there, which means that directly impacts how many people have to be evacuated and are the roads adequate. These are all things um, that we obviously learned from Paradise and other fires. We, we learned it just this weekend, evacuating 180,000 people, you know, down Highway 101 in Sonoma County. Uh, we just have to look at it under the lens of how fast these fires move, uh, how many people we're going to have to evacuate, can we protect them, can we protect the community. Um, and so we need to be making decisions that don't just meet the minimum of, the, of what's required, but what do they meet the really what kinds of fires we're seeing now and where we're going. So you have how many acres in your land in El Dorado County? About 71. And you're building a house? Yes. Say fire came through um, and you had just built the house and it burned down. And uh, would you rebuild? Would you leave? What would you do if fire took out your home, property, valuables? Um, what, would, what do you think that you would do? It's a really good question, and uh, a lot of people ask me. You know, you're the chief of Cal Fire, but you're you know you're moving into the wildland urban interface. Uh, we're going into this eyes wide open. I you know after over 30 years of being into these fires, um, you have to know what you're in for and be prepared that you're going to be doing way more than say what you'd be doing if you're living down in a more urban environment. You have to know the risks you're getting into. Uh, it costs more. It requires more effort. Uh, and that means all of the work you do to protect your home, that defensible space. Uh, it's ensuring adequate water supplies. And again, it's not the minimum, but it's what does it really take to protect your home? And you have to recognize your home needs to be able to stand on its own because firefighters, ha there aren't enough firefighters to go around to protect every home. And so you have to do everything you can and more uh, that you can do to make that home uh, defensible. And that's the building construction. Again, it's the water supply. It's the clearing and maintaining of the clearance uh, of the vegetation. It's the ensuring good access. Uh, and then it's the expectation that you're taking a risk and that, yes, there's always that risk that you could lose your home you know, to the fire. And understand that. And it comes with uh, challenges. And again, the fire insurance, uh, homeowners insurance has been a significant issue, particularly throughout the foothills uh, here uh, in the last year. Many homeowners policies are not being renewed because of the significant uh, losses taken by underwriters. And so it's working through doing your part and we're, you know, hoping that, again, you're taking a risk that insurance companies will invest, uh, you know, and, and cover your policy. But, you know, I both personally and professionally, you know, obviously have been spending a lot of time engaging on the subject. And uh, there's a lot of work going on with fire safe councils and others with the insurance companies to try to, you know, find what's that opportunity for insurance companies to continue to support insurance. But what do communities need to do to make that um, palatable for those companies to come in? So my last question for you is, as the Kincaid fire blazes and the Getty fire blazes, and we're expecting another round of wind coming through tomorrow, and an earthquake just hit, sometimes it feels like, is California worth living in? Uh, and then this term being used by uh, PG&E and Gavin and everyone, the new normal. Uh, is this the new normal? What's the new normal, I guess? <laughs> For us, and I guess in your experience, you know, fighting fire for 30 plus years, you know, how do we deal with the new normal? And is there any hope that you can give us? Uh, California is worth living. I'm a native Californian. Uh, I'm not leaving California. Uh, but we have to recognize that California, uh, fire is part of the landscape in California. And we have to learn to live with it. And to do that we are going to have to think differently. And yeah, we say, we, we talked a lot, even in the last three or four years about the new normal. Well, the, the new normal is, is the normal now, right? We are, this is what we are going to be facing. And so uh, how do we address that? And I don't, I think this expectation that uh, government's going to do everything for us, uh, 
that's unrealistic. I think we all have to work together and we all have a role uh, and we're just going to have to all accept more responsibility for living here and we have to accept the risk and I don't think that the risk that we should lay awake every night uh, thinking that this is cataclysmic. I think we have to, yeah, it's sobering, but we can live with it. And I think we ha there are ways we can mitigate this risk, but we have to be able to accept uh, that. And there's some things we're going to have to do differently uh, to be able to do that. And yeah, it includes we may not be able to build in all the same spots or to do to build in these places. We have to put in mitigations that certainly could be more costly. But it, it is the reality of what we're facing. This is not going to change uh, anytime soon. We are going to continue to see these conditions. It will continue to be an impact. Uh, but I think each and every one of us has an opportunity to be part of the solution. Well, Chief Ken Pimlot, thank you so much for taking time to come talk with us and uh, enjoy retirement and your new home. And I hope it doesn't burn down. <laughs> and, and thank you very much for your 35 plus years of putting the fires out in California. Thank you. And I, I would just like to close by just saying, you know, reaching out to all of those uh, residents, everyone in California impacted by these fires, both the residents, the firefighters, law enforcement. Um, you know, obviously, everyone's in our thoughts. And uh, thank you very much for the opportunity today.